Welcome to Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. This will be your audio companion to the self-guided tour through 15,000 acres of short and mixed grass prairie. This audio tour guide was produced to coincide with each mile of your journey. If you need to stop the recording for any reason as one mile ends, but you haven't quite reached the next mile, do that. You can always hit play as soon as you enter the next appropriate mile. Each mile of this tour will bring you to new and exciting areas and allow you to witness a wide variety of wildlife, including bison, deer, coyotes, songbirds, waterfowl, and raptors. Remember, whatever wildlife you come across is truly wild, so please stay in or near your vehicle, not only for your safety, but for the safety of the animals. Before you reach mile one to start your tour, you'll leave the visitor center and turn east on 64th Avenue Watch for mule deer, songbirds, and black-tailed prairie dogs as you drive through the short grass prairie. At the stop sign, continue east to start the wildlife drive. If you haven't reached the stop sign at 64th Avenue and Havana Street, pause the audio and resume after you reach the stop sign. As you begin your journey through the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge, but before you reach mile marker one, you will see a trail on your right this is the Rocky Mountain Greenway Trail System. Through municipal trail connections, the Greenway Trail will connect this refuge with Two Ponds National Wildlife Refuge in Arvada, Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge in Golden, and ultimately Rocky Mountain National Park. The 4.8 mile trail consists of paved portions as well as hard packed crushed gravel. Ahead on your left, you should also see Lake Ladora. Not only does this 64-acre lake feature a nearly two-mile hiking loop around it, but depending on the time of year, we'll play host to a wide variety of waterfowl. Waterfowl viewing is most productive in the spring and late fall when the migration is in full swing, but no matter what time of year you're here, you should see different species of birds. If you happen to be visiting between April and November, you might also want to consider the catch and release fishing opportunities available on Lake Ladora and nearby Lake Mary. Full fishing rules and regulations are available on the refuge website. Around the lake or in the short grass prairie, you might also see either whitetail or mule deer. The differences between the two species of deer can include body color, with the mule deer generally appearing a bit darker than whitetails. Another dead giveaway is ear and body size, with mule deer generally larger on both accounts. Mule deer bucks also possess bifurcated or forked antlers, while whitetails sport tines that don't split at the top. When spooked, mule deer will escape in a manner called stodding, which is a bouncing gait more commonly found in gazelles. The history of these two species of deer is a long one, dating back to as far as 30 million years ago when their common ancestor had fangs instead of antlers. Eventually, evolution would produce dozens of deer species throughout North America, South America, Asia, and even Europe. In the refuge, you'll find mule deer and whitetails sharing similar territory, but historically the two subspecies have existed in different habitats, with mule deer thriving in mountainous, higher elevation environments, and whitetails favoring lower environments. As urban sprawl continues and the human population grows, it's likely that the ranges of these two subspecies will further overlap due to limited habitat. 
Although these two species of deer share the refuge as their home range, you should look to find whitetails in the woodlands and mule deer in the open shortgrass prairie. Once you pass Peoria Street, you should see mile marker one. Mile marker one. As you begin the first mile of this drive, keep an eye out on the left side past the split rail fence at the crest of the hill for Lower Derby Lake. At 72 acres, Lower Derby Lake is the largest on the refuge and is definitely worth checking out. There's a wildlife viewing platform at the lake, which is an excellent spot to bird watch. Use the parking lot on the right side of the road to park and walk across the street to the platform. During seasonal migrations and the summer months, you might see blue herons, American white pelicans, waterfowl, and a host of shorebirds. If you happen to be visiting during the winter months, keep an eye out for bald eagles in the cottonwood trees near the lake. They often use them to roost or for suitable perches when they are scanning the lake for their next meal. The bald eagle, which is a common sight on the refuge and a true endangered species success story, was once on the brink of extinction. After the Endangered Species Preservation Act was established in 1966, expanded in 1969, and expanded once again in 1973, it became the Endangered Species Act we know today. At nearly the same time, another act, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, was created. This multinational effort between the United States, Mexico, Canada, Japan, and Russia set the stage for the eventual recovery of the iconic raptors. In that same year, DDT was banned, which further offered bald eagles an opportunity to restore their depleted populations. By 2007, the bald eagle was officially removed from the endangered species list. However, bald and golden eagles continue to be protected by the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act. As you progress through the first mile, notice a row of trees on your right. This is the remnant of a windbreak planted by one of the 180 families that used to call the refuge home. Mile marker two. Look for the wildlife drive sign and then turn left onto Potomac Street. To your right, you will see a fence line, which is one of the many bison pastures throughout the refuge. As you drive down the hill through the wooded area, you'll notice that it's home to small birds like warblers and woodpeckers. You might also hear the chorus of various species of frogs if you're visiting during the spring or summer because this part of the refuge features seasonal shallow ponds. Stretching around and beyond these ponds is the grassland habitat that plays host to the iconic American bison. You should also see just ahead a sign indicating that this is where one-way travel begins. As you cross the cattle guard, you are now in the bison pasture. Please stay in your vehicle and keep at least 50 to 100 yards of distance between your vehicle and the bison. No one animal symbolizes the Great Plains quite like the bison. Bison covered the Great Plains for several thousand years, existing not only as one of North America's largest land animals, but also a source of life and cultural significance for Native Americans. As European settlement crept from east to west across the land during the 19th century, settlers looked upon the bison as an infinite resource. 
whether for sport, food, or in efforts to deprive native cultures of their livelihood, settlers and market hunters killed bison at numbers almost unimaginable today, with some historians pegging the estimates at a staggering 50 million animals. This led to the entirety of the bison population consisting of just a few hundred animals. Today, bison herds are a shadow of what they used to be, but the threat of near extinction is gone. Bison, which are herbivores, can live up to 20 years. Males can weigh in excess of one ton, and females can weigh up to 1,200 pounds. Mature bulls can stand over six feet at the shoulder, and while they appear to be slow, lumbering animals, they are anything but. When spooked or threatened, bison can run up to 35 miles per hour. Bison calves are born anywhere from late March throughout May. At birth, they will weigh anywhere from 30 to 70 pounds and are orangish-red in color, giving them the name Red Dogs. Within a few months of their birth, their hair color starts to darken and they'll begin to develop both their horns and the unmistakable shoulder hump that is so prominent in adulthood. Mile marker three. Please slow down and come to a full stop at the 30 mile per hour speed limit sign. From this point, you can look to the east and see a bald eagle nest in the tallest visible tree, although it may be difficult to spot during summer months when the trees have leaves. Bald eagles typically mate for life, and the pair that uses this nest has been together since the early 2000s. While many people assume that bald eagles, once they reach maturity, sport their distinctive white head feathers, this isn't true. It isn't until an eagle reaches five years of age that its head feathers and its tail feathers turn white. This leads to young bald eagles often being mistaken for hawks or falcons. Bald eagle eye color also changes as they mature, going from brown to gold. With these eyes, eagles can see in both monocular and binocular vision meaning they can use their eyes together or independently, depending on what they are focusing on. Their eyes are also fixed in place. Eagles, unable to move their eyeballs in the socket, have to change their body position to get a new look at something. If this sounds like an evolutionary flaw, it's not. Not only can eagles see in the UV light range, they can distinguish more colors than us and see prey animals from as far away as a few miles. Another animal not quite as well known as the bald eagle is the black-footed ferret. In 2015, also to the east of your vehicle, the endangered black-footed ferrets were reintroduced. This once common Great Plains mammal was down to just 18 animals in the early 1980s. The remnant population was captured and used to establish a breeding center in Wyoming. Those efforts have led to a slow increase in black-footed ferret populations, which has been bolstered by nearly 30 reintroduction sites across North America. Black-footed ferrets' favorite food source is prairie dogs, which comprise up to 90% of their diet. These stealthy predators can measure two feet long from nose to the tip of their tail and weigh up to about 2.5 pounds. If you were to spend some time within close proximity to a family of black-footed ferrets, you'd likely hear a wide variety of vocalizations. From their loud alarm chatter to hisses, whimpers, and even the breeding season chortle, black-footed ferrets are a talkative bunch. 
If you're curious about seeing black-footed ferrets up close, please stop by the live ferret exhibit behind the visitor center, which is open Wednesdays through Sundays from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. By now, you should be close to the First Creek Bridge. Watch for white-tailed deer, commonly seen in the wooded areas. In the spring and summer, you'll also be treated to the sounds of frogs and toads, and hopefully, the sightings of swallows darting just above the cattails as they hunt for their favorite food, insects. Please continue along the road and observe all posted signs. Mile Marker 4 As you pass the Mile Marker 4 sign, take a look to the west where you'll see the front range of the Rocky Mountains. These magnificent peaks owe their creation to a time some 60 million years ago when the Mesozoic Era was giving away to the Cenozoic Era. The creation of mountain ranges is often depicted in modern media as a fast, violent event, but in reality, it took millions of years for them to reach such great heights. The Rockies stretch for over 3,000 miles from north to south, with 78 of the highest 100 peaks located right here in Colorado. When you drive over the cattle guard, you'll leave behind the bison pasture and enter an expansive short grass prairie. This habitat once covered much of the landscape, but was drastically altered for over a century by human farming practices and here specifically, wartime munitions manufacturing. This allowed weeds an opportunity to take root and crowd out the native grasses, changing not only the plant life, but the entire biodiversity of the area. Efforts to return the land back to its original form involved plowing, reseeding with select prairie seeds, and prescribed burns. It wasn't easy, but it was a success, which is evidenced by not only the plant life you can see, but the wildlife and the songbird populations as well. On your left, you'll see a former U.S. Army bunker. This reminder of our past was used during wartime production to allow for the observation of test munition launches. To keep the observers safe, the bunker was built with one-inch thick glass windows and a reinforced steel door. Although this area underwent environmental cleanup, it is important that visitors observe all posted signs such as stay in vehicle and area closed. Visitors in this area are required to stay in their vehicle. Due to the site's munitions history, use the following basic rules. If you didn't drop it, don't pick it up and report any unknown object to refuge staff. Mile Marker 5 Ahead on your left, you'll see two U.S. Army landfill sites that hold the old building debris and soil from the cleanup of the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. The buildings were used intermittently from World War II through the Cold War to support wartime efforts, as well as to destroy munitions made at the arsenal. This is all that is left after a long history of producing munitions at the site, which all started after the December 7, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. That attack prompted the creation of the Rocky Mountain Arsenal in 1942. The arsenal was responsible for producing and manufacturing chemical weapons for over three decades until the Vietnam War came to a close in 1975. This area is not part of the refuge, but instead is monitored and maintained by the U.S. Army. It is also a great reminder of the conservation success story that involves a once active military site turned into a biodiverse wildlife sanctuary. As you travel along this mile of the journey, you should be able to look to the north and see Henderson Hill. At first glance, this high spot in the prairie might not seem all that remarkable, 
but Henderson Hill has played a role in human culture for centuries. Artifacts including pottery, spear points, and arrowheads have been found on the hill, some of which are estimated to be at least 7,000 years old. This area served as a natural campsite for nomadic hunter-gatherers who migrated to North America as early as 40,000 BC. During the time when Columbus arrived in North America, Apache tribes occupied this area of the refuge and utilized Henderson Hill for camping, hunting, and survival. Since then, several Native American tribes have used the hill for the same reasons. The most heavily utilized season for camping and hunting from Henderson Hill was during the spring months, which not only coincided with the time of year when the most water flowed through the surrounding creeks, but also when game animals migrated to the area to take advantage of the lush spring growth. The plant life growing on top of the hill was also of great value as a food source and medicinally. Plants like pigweed and goosefoot were both gathered for food, while saltbrush was used as a seasoning. Alum root, also known as coral bells, is another plant the Native Americans prized. This root can be dried and ground into a powder, which then can be sprinkled on external wounds, sores, and ulcers. Alum root was also steeped in an eye wash and even used to treat swollen feet. Alum root, along with various plants used for food sources and seasoning, can still be found growing on Henderson Hill to this day. Please observe all of the posted signs along the road as you travel to mile marker 6. Mile marker 6. You've just passed First Creek. Look to the north of the road and you'll see an area that has been restored into true prairie habitat. Eventually, native plants will be returned to this entire area, bringing back to balance what is meant to grow and thrive here. First Creek is home to not only Virginia rails, but also soras, two bird species that thrive in marshy habitats and can occasionally be observed in the cattails. While both rails and soras are often observed in close proximity to one another, their diet actually differs quite significantly. Soras are mostly seed eaters, but the Virginia rail eats mostly insects, crawfish, snails, and even small fish. The creek is also home to one of the largest rodents in the world, the American beaver. These industrious rodents tip the scales at, on average, about 60 pounds. While you might catch a glimpse of a beaver in the daylight, they are primarily nocturnal. They spend their nights constructing dams and building lodges, making them a truly rare example of an animal that not only impacts its own ecosystem, but intentionally alters it for their own benefit. Prior to European settlement of North America, beaver populations were estimated to be in the tens of millions and possibly numbered in the hundreds of millions. Highly sought after for their fur and as a food source, Trappers throughout the 1700s and the 1800s decimated their population. Demand for beaver fur is at least partially responsible for the expansion of settlements throughout the American West as trappers traveled to new territories in search of fresh beaver populations to target. Eventually, the diminished beaver populations led to conservation efforts and a recovery of the species, although numbers will likely never reach what they once were. As you travel through mile six of your journey, you'll pass through a large dip in the road. This was designed into the route to ensure that even during a weather event, like a 100-year flood, stormwater could be moved away from the site's two remaining army landfills. At this point in this section of your tour, you'll be treated to mountain views that include a look at some of our most beautiful peaks, including Long's Peak. 
The summit of Long's Peak stretches to 14,259 feet into the sky and is not only visually stunning, but also serves as a destination for thrill-seeking mountain climbers. Mile Marker 7. From the start of Mile Marker 7, you'll see more shortgrass prairie. What you might also see are several species of ground-nesting birds, including horned larks, grasshopper sparrows, and Colorado State Bird, the lark bunting. All of these bird species, and plenty more, require vast amounts of space to thrive. This is why you might notice that certain areas of the northern part of the refuge are roadless. This is by design. The goal was to give some of the keynote shortgrass prairie species a true refuge, which means they can have that part of the prairie all to themselves. Shortgrass prairie can offer up the appearance of an empty land, but nothing could be further from the truth. Besides the songbirds that nest here and the insects they feed on, you could at any moment see both predator and prey animals, the latter of which is most common in the coyote. Coyotes, while considered nothing more than a pest in some areas of the country, are actually quite fascinating. Originating in the American Southwest, coyotes are one of the few animals that humans actively tried to eliminate completely. The efforts to shoot, trap, and poison them actually did the opposite because coyotes are one of only 19 species of animals that adapt to stress through something biologists call fission-fusion. This allows them to dissolve or split up their packs and either pair off or set out solo. When this happens, they also increase their litter size as they migrate into new areas. Essentially, the idea that coyotes could be eliminated was responsible for pushing them into much of North America, well beyond their native home range. Today, coyotes are found throughout the United States and have proven to be so adaptable that they frequently thrive not only in the wild, but in suburban and urban settings. Coyotes are often viewed as carnivorous canines, but in reality are actually omnivores with an incredibly diverse diet. In addition to meat, they've been known to eat everything from cactus fruit and mesquite beans to flowers and even apples and other fruit. Mile Marker 8 As you enter Mile 8 of your drive, you may not realize that you're around several towns. That's because they're all underground. The black-tailed prairie dog lives here in colonies, which are a feat of rodent engineering. While you might notice mounds of dirt around the entrance, which also function as watchtowers so that the prairie dogs can keep an eye out for predators, what you can't see is that beneath the surface are burrows that are connected by tunnels and built to keep rain and snow from getting inside. These tunnels and chambers can be as far as 15 feet below the Earth's surface. On average, a colony will span less than a half of a square mile, but the largest prairie dog colony ever found covered over 25,000 square miles and could have housed up to 400 million prairie dogs. Black-tailed prairie dogs are actually ground squirrels, but were so named due to the alarm call they make that sounds somewhat like a canine's bark. With an established population of prairie dogs, you're sure to find some hungry predators nearby. Keep an eye out for perched raptors like the red-tailed hawk. If you're visiting in the summer, you might also catch a glimpse of a Swainson's hawk, which generally sports a light-colored belly, a reddish-brown chest, and brown or gray upper feathers. Further variations in color do occur, meaning you might see a nearly all-black Swainson's hawk as well. If you're visiting during the winter, keep an eye out for the ferruginous hawk, which is often mistaken for an eagle due to its size and coloring. With an average wingspan measuring 4 to 5 feet, this raptor is built to soar above prairies and grasslands while hunting. 
not only for prairie dogs and other rodents, but also smaller birds, reptiles, and even insects. Another airborne predator you might spot, at least during the late spring and throughout the summer, is the unique burrowing owl. These owls spend their winters in Mexico and fly their way to the refuge in the spring where they set up shop in abandoned prairie dog burrows. Measuring only about nine inches tall, these small owls are actually most active during the daytime, not at night like many of their North American cousins. Their diet consists of mice, voles, grasshoppers, and even beetles, and they've been known to stash away food to ensure an adequate supply during both incubation and brooding of their young. They also line the entrances to their burrows with animal dung before laying eggs in an effort to attract various insects, which serves as an owl buffet right at their doorstep. As you drive closer to mile marker 9, please stay in your vehicle because you'll be entering another bison pasture. Mile marker 9. Take a look to your left now and you'll see a bison corral. This is used to ensure the health of the bison herd and allow staff to safely conduct annual health checks on all of the bison in the refuge. To accomplish this, all of the bison are microchipped so that when they pass through the corral, biologists can quickly collect specific genetic and health information for each individual. Not only is this information valuable from a herd health perspective, but it also informs decisions by biologists on which bison should stay in the refuge and which ones should be transferred to other national wildlife refuges or conservation herds. The mixing and matching of bison is essential for maintaining a diverse genetic pool among the herds here and benefits the bison as a whole species by allowing other animal managers the opportunity to keep their herds healthy and genetically diverse. Modern bison management is an excellent example of how technology is helping us protect not only the land, but the animals that once thrived here. If you look behind the corral, despite its name, we encourage visitors to take a drive up Rattlesnake Hill Road to the scenic overlook on top, which provides a breathtaking view of the entire refuge. As you exit the bison pasture, you'll see that the one-way travel ends. Please continue straight along Havana Street. Mile marker 10. While driving slowly along Havana Street, be on the lookout for mule deer. They love the short grass prairie and also browse and hide in the New Mexico locust thickets. This highly adaptable tree provides the perfect spot for prey animals and songbirds to seek refuge. New Mexico locusts produce an edible pod, which is a flat legume that ripens in late spring and is readily consumed by herbivores, which then spread the seeds out across the land. While scanning the landscape for mule deer, don't forget to look for the directional sign leading you to Lakes Mary and Ladora, along with the contact station. If you wish to exit the refuge, turn right at the intersection of Havana Street and 64th Avenue. We sincerely hope you enjoyed the wildlife drive and your visit to the refuge. We hope to see you again. Visitors often return during different seasons to take in what the refuge has to offer from a year-round perspective. You can also stop by the Visitor Center to learn more about the history of the refuge, the various habitats located here, and the wildlife. You can also pick up information on the refuge programs and activities or stop by the gift store for a souvenir. From all of us at the Wildlife Refuge, thank you for visiting. And a special thanks goes to Friends of the Front Range Wildlife Refuges and the National Wildlife Refuge Association 
for their generous support throughout the creation of this podcast. 